Chapter 23 The Life and Adventures of James P. Beckworth Mountaineer, Scout, and Pioneer and Chief of the Crow Nation of Indians Written from his own dictation by T.D. Bonner This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. We left the fort and proceeded toward our tobacco ground. We planted the seed and spent a short time in festivity. It was deemed inexpedient to build a medicine lodge this season, as all the business could be transacted in a temporary one. Our stock of horses being greatly diminished, we deemed this a fitting time to try and replenish it, and various small parties sallied out for that purpose. I left with only seventeen warriors for the country of the Arapahoes, situated on the headwaters of the Arkansas. On arriving at their village, we found a great number of horses upon which we made a descent, but we were discovered before we could lay our hands on any and had to scatter in all directions in an effort to escape. One of our party had his leg broken with a rifle ball, but he did not fall into the enemy's hands as he crawled away and secreted himself. Two months subsequently, he found his way home with his leg nearly healed. He stated that, after receiving his wound, he plunged into the river, which flowed close by, and swam to an island, there concealing himself in a thick brush. The enemy moved away the next day, and he swam back to their camping ground, where he found an abundance of meat, which he carried over to his quarters. Upon this, he fared sumptuously until he was strong enough to walk. Then he made his way home. I saw the village move the next morning, and gathering four of my scattered companions, I followed the enemy at a respectable distance until they encamped for the next night. We then made another descent upon their fold, and succeeded in obtaining each man a horse. We saw no more of the remains of our party until we returned to our village upward of a year subsequently. We came to the resolution to quit the Arapahoes and pay the snakes a visit. On reaching them, we found horses in abundance and could have levied upon them for any number. But being at peace with the tribe, we contented ourselves with exchanging our jaded and foot-sore animals for five fresh ones from their drove. Here we dropped an arrow, and they recognized it for a crow arrow readily. We also put on new moccasins and left our old ones behind us. When the snakes fell in with the crows some time after, they charged them with stealing their horses which charge the crows strenuously denied. The snakes persisted, and to confirm their accusation, produced the arrow and the abandoned moccasins. 
This satisfied the crows that it must be some of the Arapaho expedition, and hopes of our safety were revived. From the snakes we passed on to the Flathead Territory, where we found thousands of horses, but felt ourselves under the same moral restrictions as with the snakes. Accordingly, we merely exchanged again, and again left five pairs of moccasins. Subsequently, they made the same charge against the crows and accused them of infringing the treaty. The crows again pleaded innocence, and again the moccasins convicted them of their guilt. They, however, resorted to diplomatic finesse, and an appeal to arms was averted. Again, their hopes were rekindled of seeing us once more. We then took a notion to pay the Kootenays a flying visit, where we made another exchange. We could have taken all the horses we wanted, but to get home with them, we must have taken a wide circuit, or have passed through the territory of two hostile nations. We next moved to the Asnibone River, which empties into Hudson's Bay. Here, we borrowed 150 head of fine horses from the Blood Indians and started on our way home. We arrived, without accident, at the Muscleshell River, within one day's ride of our own people, where we encamped, intending to reach home the next day. But that night, the crows swept away every horse we had, not even leaving us one for our own use. We must have slept very soundly during the night. Indeed, we were all greatly fatigued, for we did not hear a single movement. In getting our horses, they glorified themselves over having made a glorious haul from the Blackfeet. Not liking to be foiled in our resolution to return home with a respectable accompaniment of horses, we retraced our steps to the Asnibone River, intending to start another drove. On our return, we found our friends had left and had crossed to the other side of the mountain. We followed on, but delayed so long on the western slope that the heavy snowstorms, now falling, cut off all possibility of returning home before spring. Therefore, we built a comfortable lodge in what was called Sweet Mountain, in a cannon where we could kill a buffalo every day, the skins of which, covered entirely over our lodge, made a very agreeable abode for the winter. We also killed several large wolves and dressed their skins in the nicest manner. We likewise took three Blackfoot scalps. The Indians, whose horses we had been in pursuit of, after having roamed about considerably, had gone into winter quarters only twelve or fifteen miles distant. Their smoke was visible from our lodge. On the return of spring, we visited our neighbor's camp and selected one hundred and twenty head of such horses as we thought would stand the journey. We then returned over the mountain and reached as far as the Judith in safety, which was within three days' ride of the village. We were greatly fatigued and halted to encamp for the night and rest our jaded horses. Again, the crows stripped us of every horse, 
leaving us on foot once more. Resolved not to be beat, we determined to try our luck a third time before we returned to our village. I told my four companions that my medicine promised me success, and that when we did eventually get home, we should be able to see what amount of affection was felt toward us by our people, by ascertaining how much crying had been done for us. I had no doubt we had been mourned as dead, for we had been absent above a year. During this time, we subsequently learned there had been great mourning for us, and many had cut off their hair. My father, however, still persisted that I was alive, and would some day return, and he would allow none of his family to cut off their fingers for me. At the time, the Flatheads went in with their complaint. They were about to elect another chief to fill my place, but when they saw the five pairs of moccasins produced, they knew they must have had crow wares, and their hopes were revived of again seeing us, and the election ceremony was postponed. My father would have no steps taken toward filling my vacant place before the erection of the next medicine lodge. He said he did not know where his calf had rambled, and it was his firm belief that in the course of time he would ramble home again. When we reached the Asney Bone for the third time, we found that our friends who had accommodated us with the two previous droves of horses had gone over the mountain and passed down that river to Fort Row, one of the Hudson's Bay trading posts. By the appearance of their trail, we judged that they had been joined by other villages, probably from the Kootenays and Pagans, all on their way to the trading post for the purchase of their spring supply of goods. We followed their trail for several days, which grew fresher and fresher, until one afternoon we came suddenly upon a horse. We were at that time in thick timber, with a dense growth of underbrush and thousands of wild pea vines about. On seeing the horse, we halted suddenly. On looking farther around, we discovered horses of all colors and stripes, ring-streaked and speckled. Shortly, the sound of voices reached our ears. In an instant, we stooped down and crept under the almost impenetrable vines, nor did we venture to move from our hiding place until night. We could distinctly hear the chatter of men, women, and children around us, and some of the squaws came most dangerously near when gathering firewood for their campfires. We could occasionally peep out and we saw in those glimpses that they had beautiful horses, and besides, that they were in good traveling condition. We then felt no doubt that the Kootenays were in company, since they always prided themselves in spotted horses, as Jacob of old took pride in spotted cattle. In that encampment, it is so little entered into their heads to anticipate molestation that they had placed no horse guards to keep watch. The noise of the horses in tearing through the pea vines assisted us materially in our nocturnal enterprise. 
We selected 280 of their largest, strongest, and handsomest cattle, with which we lost no time in making direct for Crowland, nor did we venture to give rest to their hooves until a journey, continued through three days and nights, placed what we considered a safe distance between us. We then ventured to encamp for the night to afford to the poor tired-out animals an opportunity to rest for a while, but starting off at early dawn to preclude all possibility of recapture. On the fifth day, we discovered an Indian a short distance from our trail, who was coming in an oblique direction toward us. He stopped on the hillside at some little distance off and motioned for us to approach him. Supposing him to be a crow, I desired my companions to drive on, while I went to see what he wanted. When I had approached within a few yards of him, he put on an air of surprise and placed his hand to his shoulder with the intention of drawing his bow. I sprang upon him instantly and cut him down, and despoiled him of his scalp and quiver. When about to leave to overtake my companions, I perceived the distant smoke of a Blackfoot village, situated immediately in the direction that we were journeying, and it was beyond doubt that the Indian I had just killed was a spy belonging to that village. He must have mistaken us for some of his own tribe, and only discovered his mistake when I approached near enough for him to distinguish my features. My companions returning to me, we altered our course and passed over a mountain covered with deep snow. So hard, however, that we passed it without losing a horse. This was one of the spurs of the Rocky Mountains and covered with perpetual snows. After sixteen days of almost incessant travel day and night, we came in sight of our village just as the sun was sinking behind the distant mountains. We approached within a mile of the village and encamped under a small hill, as yet unperceived by our people, for the hill in the shelter of which we lay was between ourselves and the village. It was now the latter end of June, I think, in the year 1834. After resting a while, I thought to get some tobacco to indulge in a smoke before making our grand entree at the same time requesting my companions to keep a sharp lookout and see that the crows did not steal our horses again. Finally, three of us entered in cog and smoked with several of the old men, not one of whom recognized us or once thought of us. We passed all through the village, looking leisurely about us. The streets were full of people, yet not one bestowed a thought on us. When it became somewhat late and the inhabitants had principally retired, I dismissed my two companions to the camp, telling them I would get some tobacco and rejoin them in a short time. I then entered the lodge of one of my wives, who was asleep in bed. I shook her by the arm and aroused her. Waking, she inquired, Who is this in the lodge? I answered, It is your husband. I never had but one husband, she replied, and he is dead. No, said I, 
I am he. You are not dead, then, as we have believed? No, I said. I have been wandering a long while and have only just returned. We all mourned you, she continued, many moons ago, and we all mourn you now every day. We believed that the enemy had killed you. No, I said. I escaped. I have now brought home a large drove of beautiful spotted horses, and if you will do as I wish you, you shall have your choice of the whole drove, and you will become a medicine woman also. I will do what you wish me, she replied. Well, I want you, when you get up in the morning, to request the village to refrain from crying for one son. Tell them that you dreamed that I came home riding a large and spotted horse, having the other four men with me, that we had nearly three hundred of the most beautiful horses you ever saw, and that we rode with large wolfskins spread on our horses' backs, mine being as white as the drifted snow. She agreed to do all as I had bidden her. I then left her lodge, but before quitting the village, I called in at my father's lodge. All was still around, and entering on a tiptoe, I reached down the medicine shield, which no one but his wife or eldest son is privileged to handle. And opening it, I took out all his medicine tobacco, carrying it back to the camp with me, and then replaced the shield upon its peg. I then returned to our camp and enjoyed a good smoke with my companions our spirits waxing elate at the surprise we had in store. Early the next morning, the woman, true to her word, narrated her dream to the astonished inhabitants, with whatever additions her own fancy suggested. My father and mother listened attentively to her revelation, and before she had got through with her narrative, she had quite a numerous auditory. We were watching the occurrence from the brow of the hill, and knowing she would have to rehearse her vision several times before it was generally known throughout the village, we did not hurry to show ourselves. My father and mother, having heard her through, turned and entered their lodge. Suddenly, the medicine shield caught my mother's eye. It had evidently been moved. My father took it down and opened it. The tobacco was gone. This opened the old gentleman's eyes. It is well, he said. My son lives. And he believed the substance of the dream as fervently as the prophetess who uttered it. The bystanders, seeing his medicine so strong, and he beginning to sing and dance, they all joined in, until the noise of their revelry reached us on our distant eminence. Now was our time. We mounted our caparisoned steeds, and, forming ourselves in procession, we commenced our grand entree, singing and shouting at the top of our voices. Our tones are heard, and the villagers gaze around in surprise. Hark! they exclaimed. Look yonder! There are five men mounted on large spotted steeds. Who are they? All was hushed as the grave in the village, each striving to catch the sound of our distant strains. The five horsemen disappeared as if by magic, 
and reappeared driving a large drove of horses before them of all colors. The horsemen again pause on the summit. Hark! Listen! They sing again! Who can they be? Not a soul yet stirred from the village. We drove our horses down toward them and left them there while we took a circuit around, displaying our scalps, but still keeping over gunshot distance. The old men came out to us, carrying drums. Each of us took one, and then we bounded away to the rear of our horses. We raised a well-known song, and all listened to the tones of the returning medicine calf. At length, our wives and relatives broke away from the throng, and darted over the plain to meet us. They fairly flew over the intervening space to welcome us in their arms. A tall sister of mine outstripped the rest, and arrived first, and immediately after my little wife was also by my side. After a warm greeting exchanged with these, the warriors came up and saluted us with a shout that would have aroused Napoleon's old guard from their graves. We were lifted from our horses and almost denuded of our clothing and carried by the impetuous throng into the village. My father had painted his face into an exact resemblance of Satan in token of his joy at my happy return. I was kissed and caressed by my mother, sisters, and wives until I fairly gasped for breath. Any person who has ever beheld a real, downright rejoicing among savages can form but a faint conception of their unrestrained manifestations. Words can convey no adequate idea of it. Being untutored and natural, and not restricted by any considerations of grace or propriety, they abandon themselves to their emotions, and no gesture is too exaggerated no demonstration too violent for them to resort to. My friend, with many others, had given me up for dead and had adopted another in my place, so that there were now three of us who all knew one another's secrets. Pineleaf was overjoyed at my return. She had become confident of my death, and was only waiting to ascertain the nation that had killed me in order to revenge my loss, or be sacrificed to my madness. Couriers were immediately dispatched to the other village to acquaint them with our return, and to invite them to participate in the celebrations of the event. Longhair returned for answer. Tell my brother I will fly to see him. They lost six warriors on their way to our village, though carelessly straggling in detached parties. Consequently, they came to us in mourning for their loss. The two droves of horses which the crows have released us of were all religiously returned. Those that the captors had given away were promptly delivered up, so that we were now in possession of a very numerous drove. I distributed my share among my relatives, friends, wives, and wives' relatives until I had only just enough for my own use. I gave my father an elegant steed, the largest in the whole drove, 
to the heroine, I gave a spotted four-year-old, a perfect beauty, one that I had intended for her as we were driving them home. He proved to be a superior warhorse, and there were but few among the thousands that we possessed that could distance him with her upon his back. She was very proud of him, and would suffer no one but herself to ride him. It took me a long time to rehearse all our adventures while away. I was required to do it very minutely and circumstantially, even to describe all our camping grounds and relate every minute occurrence that transpired during our long pilgrimage. We had certainly incurred exceeding risk in the route we had traveled, and recurring to it, I marveled at our escape. Any five men might start upon such an adventure, and not one party in ten would ever return. I reflected, however, that I was a little more sagacious than the Indians, and that I had my physical faculties as well developed as theirs. I could see fully as quick as they could, and ride as fast, if they undertook to chase me in the mountains. I now found that I had thousands of friends, whether attracted by my fancy horses or not, and that I was the idol of my proud parents. The mother of Black Panther always lived with my father, and if both survive, I presume she does to this day. I gave him the child when it was quite young to adopt as his son, in obedience to his reiterated solicitations. End of chapter 23